Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. I am joined today by Rob Hunt of Linnae Holdings out in lovely San Diego. We have David Ellison of the Scarlet Fire Cannabis Company as our guest today. And in honor of that, and just because why the hell not, we've got some great music. We got a lot of music. Dan, we're diving in right now. Go. If you guys like Grateful Dead music more than you like listening to us talk, today is the day because we're doing Scarlet Fire. We have a guest who has a store in uh, uh, up in Toronto called the Scarlet Fire Cannabis Company. We're going to get to him in one moment. Uh, but Rob, what do you think about that as a great way to kick off a, a Scarlet Fire themed show? 101483, man. I love it. And I absolutely love what Brent does on that intro because it's completely unique. You know, you're not really waiting, not expecting it. All of a sudden it kicks in almost like a, um, like a, a wood, uh, what do you call that instrument? It's a, not a steel drum, but it just has that cool like knocking noise to it. But it's a, uh, it's so unique that, that Brent plays that way. And the other thing I'll say is, I don't know what it is about the date, uh, October 14th, but October 14th produces Hot Scarlet Fires. So I am ready to talk about Scarlet Fire, and I'm definitely ready to talk about Scarlet Fire with our de- with our guest David Ellison. Yes, as am I. Uh, for those of you who enjoy that and want to hear more of that version of Scarlet Fire that we were just listening to, let me direct you to Dick's Picks number six. So you're going back a few years in the uh, dead releases here, uh, but this is probably the Dick's Picks that for me really cemented. Uh, my commitment to what they were releasing. It was a 1983 show. In fact, this show is just a few nights after the dead debuted uh, or pulled, I shouldn't say debuted, but uh, brought back out St. Stephen in the garden. And I believe the very next night up in Hartford, they pulled it out a second time uh, before retiring it out on the West coast. But uh, this was like, you know, my coming of age years was the grateful dead. And that's just a, what a great example of Scarlet fire with that, Rob, please introduce our guest today. Well, we are really fortunate to be joined by David Ellison today, who uh, owns a very cool shop up in Toronto, Canada called Scarlet Fire Cannabis Co. Uh, he was uh, introduced to us through our, our guest from last week, from Stacy Smith. So thanks and shout out to Stacy for making the introduction. But uh, David, welcome to the show and uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. Let's kick it off. Let's talk about, um, you know, I know you were an attorney in a past life and you kind of made the migration over to Canada. How did you make that switch and uh, what was the catalyst? Uh, so I had, you know, I've been, I was a sec- corporate securities lawyer for about 20 years um, and I started doing cannabis deals in 2014. 
And I took the first U.S. cannabis company public in Canada, which closed uh, in late 2015. Um, and then uh, cannabis deals just started rolling in from, from there. Um, but in terms of capital markets, uh, cannabis was really, really had gone 12 innings in a nine inning ball game. Uh, and, and, you know, given that my practice was heavily weighted in, in cannabis deals, I decided to move from being a lawyer to being a business person. And, uh, I married two real passions of mine, which are the grateful dead and cannabis. Well, I would say that would make you the uh, perfect guest for our show. Uh, you know, it doesn't get any better than that, especially when the name of your company is the Scarlet Fire Cannabis Company. Yeah, um, this is a guy you want on. So thank you so much for joining us. As we were joking with you at the beginning, Rob and I both as attorneys, uh, you know, have, have long been taking a look at that road. Rob's a little bit farther down it than I am. Uh, but by God, David, before we let you off the air today, you're going to give me the secret and I'm going to be joining you on that side of the fence because what a great thing to be able to wake up every day and, you know, just be out there going to work in the cannabis industry uh, and be, you know, be a big part of it. How did you get your company from, you know, the idea in your head, you know, out onto the floor and opening the doors? Well, well you know, as you would imagine, Larry, um, and, and, and as well, you, Rob, uh, selling weed is way more fun than drafting documents. So... <laughs> So, sure. so in the in the in the Grateful Dead, I guess ethos. You know, I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to spend. You know, I spent a, a lot of years making rich people richer, um, and uh, I really, you know, I guess really during the beginning of the pandemic, I started to think about how I can make a better contribution to this world, um, and that better contribution I thought was to improve the quality of people's lives of cannabis, which, which really was, uh, the, the founding principle of Scarlet Fire. I sat down one day with a, with, with a piece of paper and said, you know, how can I make a better contribution to this world? Um, and, and the one that stuck was to improve people's improve the quality of people's lives with cannabis. Wow, man, maybe we should bring you on as a host of the show. That's, uh, that's pretty great. Uh, you know, I have to say, I, I, I love that philosophy. And, um, you know, good for you for, you know, I think there's many of us that have gone out on Friday afternoons at the end of a long, hard week with our contemporaries and sat around over a few or more drinks, uh, you know, waiting for the last train to go home uh, and have had that conversation. And, uh, you know, we all talk about it. Not everybody does it. So it's, uh, it's great to see that you've done it. And it's great to see the, uh, the theme that you've adopted. And uh, by God, you've given me more reason to go back up to Toronto now, other than just, you know, to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame. So <laughs> this is great. Well, and uh, Yeah, well, you know, it's actually one, you know, I was never a big drinker. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, uh, practicing law, the thing to do after work or on a Friday is, is, is go out to drink. And, and after work, I used to go to these bars and I see people drinking. And I was thinking to myself, like, how miserable does your life have to be that you got to drink booze after work, right? Right? Like, like wouldn't you rather go home and like light a joint? I, listen, I, I, I can't agree with you more. And, um, you know, I, I, I consider myself very lucky because even though I'm a little bit farther along in life than, you know, I might have hoped uh, as all of this is finally coming out and into the forefront, boy, how different life might have been, right? If this had all been happening, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when we were all, you know, really just diving into this thing. Um, but I can only imagine where it's going to get to a point like you've just suggested where, you know, it will be possible to go out with your professional colleagues and some people have a drink, some people light up a smoke and, you know, anybody can do whatever they want to do. And the folks who want to drink, they, you know, look, that 
God bless them. That's their business. That you know, it just leaves more marijuana for the rest of us. That's that, that that's right. And and as you know, we get. I mean, we're still way in our infancy, but as things move along, and as the stigma towards cannabis and cannabis use starts to change, uh, you know, I think we're going to see uh, more. Uh, access to to consumption areas or consumption lounges or, or cannabis bars or things like that. Right now in Ontario, at least, uh, you can consume cannabis anywhere you can smoke a cigarette. So you can walk down the street, smoke a joint, go to a park, smoke a joint, drink a cannabis beverage in the park anywhere you want. Which is which is which is which is great because to me that's that's freedom, right? And and uh, when we look at at you know the use of cannabis compared to the use of other substances. Um, you know, we see a lot of positives coming out of cannabis. Well, I'm all for it. And I'm all for taking uh, the two themes you mentioned and marrying them together. Obviously, uh, Larry and I make a Wednesday afternoon habit of doing the same. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what I'll say even more is that, uh, you know, you, you pick the right combination of songs to put in the title of your uh, put in the title of your shop. So, you know, I can talk Scarlet Fires all day. And in fact, I've often been known to. So, you know, when we got the chance to have you on. I'm like, all right, well, this one's going to be fun because, uh, you know, we can discuss our favorites. It was certainly a great Scarlet Fire that you opened with. I mean, it, it sounded like it was tough to really make the sound, whether it was like percussion and keyboards. But certainly, you know, Brent either ate his Wheaties or got a new toy that day. Yeah, no question about it. And, you know, it. it look, we've covered a lot of different shows. We've covered a lot of different themes. You know, there's there's strong arguments to be made. You know, for the the majesty of a good morning do right, and you can it's just a song one one note in from Jerry, and we all know exactly what he's playing. You know, there's no nothing else needed, and you're like, wow, ten minutes, this is going to be great. Go for it, Jerry. Just you know, blow our minds. But at the end of the day, if you really want to capture the true spirit of the Grateful Dead, the kind of nonstop party with a little bit of a purpose, maybe. Is there a tune, a tune or combination of tunes greater than Scarlet Fire? When you hear Scarlet Fire opening a set, does that not send a message to you that you know can't be perfect every time? And we'll talk about that in a minute or two. But you know, you hear a Scarlet Fire opening up a show or opening up a set, and you got to believe you're in for a night, right? Is it, it's that kind of gets you up on your feet? It's just and, and I think I think that's absolutely correct. I also think you could tell a lot about the Scarlet Fire from the intro because if you listen to intros throughout the years, there there are little changes and little subtleties about the intro, especially Bobby's part. Bobby's part changed over the years uh, in, in that intro, but but you know it's it, it's almost like they're putting together like this gooey cauldron of smoky grateful dead right and you're just waiting for that magic to pop out of that cauldron and so scarlet fire that intro to scarlet fire like to me is like so grabbing that is a perfect segue for us to play another clip of scarlet fire so let's jump into a little bit of four fifteen eighty eight from rosemont uh, horizon which uh you know we're sort of taking this incrementally through david to play different parts of the song but you know let's stick with the intro for a little bit longer and and listen to another one that's completely contrasting to the 83 one we just heard She was 
think you picked that one for a pretty specific reason, right? What's the uh, what's the unique feature of, of that Scarlet Fire? I was at the Rosemont Horizon on April 15th, 1998. Uh, they came out and they opened it. It was amazing. I never heard a show open with Scarlet Fire. Uh, Farewell to Winterland technically opens with Sugar Mag into Scarlet Fire. And I had seen them do that, but only in the second set. But this, you know, but here, here's the part about this that, that really is magical. And Dave, I think this ties into exactly what you were just saying a second ago. Uh, it, this was one year after I had graduated from law school and I had spent my third year of law school living in Chicago. Uh, I transferred up here to go to school and I wound up living for a semester with these guys who were doctors, uh, really nice guys. They were the same year as me and uh, they had a really cool apartment down in the city, right over my buddy Harold's ice cream store on the North side. And you know, we'd hang up there all night and party, party, party and go down and Harold would feed us ice cream and it was great. So these guys loved to party. They liked to do a lot of things. Um, including throwing goldfish into a tank with piranhas late at night and watching what would happen. So that was kind of crazy too. But they always gave me grief about the Grateful Dead. You know, they listened to whatever the current music was. And even though we agreed on everything else, we could not agree on the Grateful Dead. So after I had graduated and they were in their last year of medical school, the dead came to do these shows at the Horizon. I grabbed some extra tickets and I said to them, guys, I really want you to come with me to the show. They said, great. We go, we head out there and I'm thinking, you know, if this is like one of those shows that starts off flat or where Jerry's just not hitting it right away, these guys might be lost 10 minutes into it and not have the stamina for a show. And we walk in and we're sitting kind of in the, on the, the lower level of the Rosemont, but over on the side a little bit, had lots of room. They come out and open with this thing. And about 30 minutes later, when they're done, my buddies turn to me and their jaws are on the floor and they're like, why did you ever tell us about these guys? This is amazing. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> partly you want to tell them, well, it's not like this every night, but like, screw that. It is like this every night, you know, or the, at least the anticipation of it. And it was, you know, they had a great time that night all the way through to the very end. And Dr. Dave and Dr. Al thinking about you guys. And uh, it was a great night and glad you could uh, share it with me, but it's amazing to listen. You could hear the crowd too. And right when they go into Scarlet and the crowd is like, Wow, this is unexpected, and and it was it was it was a lot of fun. Right. It, it, it's it's uh, a it's it. What what I sort of heard from listening to that clip was uh, the Bobby part, right? But you know, in, in sort of the mid late eighties, a complaint that I have is I think Bobby at times is too low in the mix, right? But in there, you could really hear that, and and the the way what Bobby plays in Scar at the beginning of Scarlet and throughout Scarlet is really 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 interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, uh, the more, you know, I, I think, you know, he really lays that foundation for Jerry. So the more interesting you can hear Bobby play, you know, that that Scarlet Fire's really got potential. So I, I can't wait till when we're done, I'm going to go and listen to that Scarlet Fire in particular. You know, it's really funny you say that. Cause I always think the same thing about, you know, kind of going into fire as well, because like, I think so many people think that it's Garcia that does the bam, ba bam, bam, ba bam. And that's all Bobby. Like, and you, you don't realize that until you hear Jerry kick into the first licks of the. Exactly. So it's a, you know, a misconception and people forget that Bobby can play lead. You know, Bobby has the chops to, uh, to, to play, you know, relatively technical um, licks and Scarlet Fire is one of the few places where he's always able to showcase that because, you know, Garcia overlays already technical licks with even more technical licks. <laughs> and, and I think Phil comes in with some melodic counterpoint in, in, in you know, both in, in the jam between Scarlet and Fire and in, and in Fire, which which really makes, you know, almost this, this triangle, this amazing triangle between Jerry, Bobby, and Phil um, that, that when they really hit it, I mean, it's like, 
I mean, it's like three minds just merge into one. Yeah, how did Garcia describe it in the, in the Hugh Hefner interview when he's talking about the drummers? <laughs> you know, it's the uh, the dragon chasing its tail. Right, you know, right. It's something about a, you know, a dragon with a big, ugly beast, you know, out there, you know, coming at everybody. And it's true. When the dead are hot like that, boy, you know, one of the ones that we're not going to listen to today, but that, you know, I just always remember very fondly was the 20th anniversary shows at, in Berkeley at the Greek in 1985. And the third night after two really great first shows, Third night they came out and uh, they opened up the second set with Scarlet Fire. And I'm thinking, boy, here I am, you know, 25, 30 shows into it. I'm peeking at the Greek. I'm right here in the bowl, checking them out. And it, it just, there was nothing else they could have played at that moment other than Scarlet Fire. And they did. And it just, you know, that's when you kind of have this connection to this feeling like this is a special moment and they lived up to it more than, more than you could hope. And the fact that they then later on reintroduced that's it for the other one in that show was also very special, but the, you know, the Scarlet fire set the tone. And I think set, playing it first sends, sends, uh, sends a real message to everyone. Like we're here tonight. I, I mean, I, I obviously never heard uh, uh, the Grateful Dead open with Scarlet fire, but I seem to recall the second night at Folsom field in 2019 dead and company opened with Scarlet fire. And I remember before that night saying, Josh, they got a lot of big, how are they going to fit all of these big second set songs? They still got to play the last night. <laughs> and they opened with Scarlet Fire. I said, well, that's one way of doing it. Absolutely. And, and, <laughs> and, but look, as we talked about a little bit earlier, as we alluded to and have to point out here, uh, they did come out of this absolutely amazing Scarlet Fire and head right into Walking Blues. And I love Bob Weir and I love the fact that he covers these, you know, these, this parade of blues tunes, Little Red Rooster and CC Ryder and Minglewood Blues and Walking Blues. And they're all great tunes. Um, and, you know, look, if, if all they do is play Scarlet Fire, that's good enough for me, you know, but anything they play after that is great. But there's a part of you that says, wow, if you're going to open with Scarlet Fire, Maybe you'll then do an estimated eyes. Why not? You know, if we're going to really blow the roof off of this thing, you've laid the predicate for it. How many times are we even going to get the Scarlet Fire? But I will say that that my doctor buddies uh, were very happy throughout the rest of the show and everybody was because it just created such a good positive vibe for the entire evening that uh, they they really could have played just about anything. We would have been happy. Uh, but they really did follow through with a strong performance. And uh, it was really, really great to hear. You know, I I think... um it also goes to like, you know, kind of your Grateful Dead experience. Like you saying, you bring your doctor buddies to uh, to a show and their first show, they got a Scarlet Fire. I think that completely changes kind of your attitude about going to see the band for the first time. And personally, I didn't get to see a Scarlet Fire until my 15th show. And I got completely screwed that on my seventh show, they played a Scarlet Estimated, which, you know, never happens. And so like, you know, the Scarlet kicks off. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm finally getting a Scarlet Fire. But David, you you got a Scarlet Fire your first show, which I think you said was six nineteen ninety one. Is I, that right? I did six nineteen ninety one at Pine Knob, uh, which is now again called Pine Knob. Um, it was the I think the DT Energy Center or something for for a while. But it's nice to see the Clarkston, Michigan, right? Yeah, in Clarkston. It's nice to see like the old venue names coming back. Like it's, it was really nice to see that change. Uh, that. I don't entirely remember the experience. I know I had a great time, uh, but going back, going back and listening to that that six nineteen ninety one Scarlet, Fire, it really is an amazing Scarlet Fire. It comes out of victim of uh, victim of crime, but in my opinion, from the Vince years, it, it it you know it's the best or maybe the the in the top five of Scarlet Fires during the Vince years. So I'll tell you something funny. My first Scarlet Fire was a victim Scarlet Fire also, and that was. Um from nine ten ninety in Philly at the Philly Spectrum, 
I think it's oh, pretty nice. rare to uh, to have two people on the show that say their first Scarlet Fire was a victim Scarlet Fire. It was a victim. Yeah, there you go. It was a victim Scarlet. Well, I will say, I'll get back to that point in a minute, but in 1984, Red Rocks, the first night they did a, a Scarlet victim. I want it was, it was a Scarlet Bobby something, maybe a Scarlet going to hell in a bucket, whatever it was, it was not Scarlet fire. There was that little period of time where they would throw in different tunes. And then eventually they just came back to Scarlet fire. My first Scarlet fire, uh, which we're going to listen to a little bit of here in a second as our third clip. Uh, and then after this, I promise no more about shows that I was at just, you know, really good, uh, uh, grateful dead, uh, Scarlet fires from the old days. Um, but this one was at Poplar Creek, uh, in Hoffman Estates, which was just west of Chicago. And Poplar Creek was this very, very nice outdoor shed uh, that was that was actually lovely. It was easy to get to from the city. It had really decent parking. Uh, the hill was, you know, very friendly, not not unlike the one at uh, uh, Deer Creek, you know, where it wasn't too steep and plenty of room for people to hang out. But then lo and behold, the dead played there one summer. And the next thing we knew, Sears stepped in and bought all the property and turned it into a Sears Center and, a, and an some sort of an arena that nobody ever went to. And after that, the dead were up at Alpine Valley on a pretty much regular basis. But this year we went to see them at Poplar Creek in 83. It was the first time I had gone on tour. So I saw Madison, went up to St. Saw St. Paul and then came back down to Chicago to catch the two last shows of the tour at Poplar Creek. And the first night on June 27th, 83, which was my seventh show, uh, they came out for the second set. They hit right into Scarlet. We were all, all my whole group of buddies we're all there. My friend Andy Greenberg, who's been on the show, uh, I believe was there. Uh, my friend Steve and Jimmy, my good buddy Harold, Tommy, Dee Dee, Janet. You know, these are the people who are like, you know, the center of my Grateful Dead life. And there we were. Some of them had seen a Scarlet Fire before. I had not. So for me, it was uh, particularly meaningful. And to get to see it with all these guys was even better. So, Dan, go ahead and we can talk more about it in a minute. Let's listen to what it sounded like on June 27th, 1983. I can tell you is it still puts on my face the exact I'm sure the smile the same size I had that entire night there were plenty of other things going on in my head to make sure I had a big smile on my face but you know they showed up they played that you know that I, I was waiting for a scarlet fire waiting 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 and there it was uh, we were all dancing around up on the hill just like it doesn't get any better than this does it this is this is as good as it could possibly be and uh uh, just a great night and uh, another, you know, version of Scarlet Fire that just leaves you with a smile. Well, I, I think you can really hear some ferociousness in, in, in Jerry's playing. And, and, and that, when it comes to Scarlet Fires, are, are my favorite is when, when, when you, you know, you can, you can sort of hear like, you know, Jerry grinding his teeth while he's playing. And, and, and he's really trying to, trying to move that trade along just on the edge of its tracks. 
well, that's what it felt like that whole night. I'm sorry, Robbie. That's what it felt like, right? I mean, your first scarlet fire, you know, your brain is all turned on and ready to go. And it, it just, you know, at, at the time, I, I imagine this must be the greatest scarlet fire of all time. And, you know, that's, that point is debatable. But certainly at that night and at that moment, it felt like it. You know, the first time you hear a tune and they didn't disappoint. It wasn't flat. It wasn't anything. They just came out and blew our heads off. It was amazing. That's always the best, that's always the best kind of show. I, I, I like to think of, of Grateful Dead songs, not as just songs, but, but you know, and, and I guess I, ha- I had this, I can't believe I'm actually telling the story, but uh, I, I had this sort of, I guess, idea in my head, like I was tripping balls one show and, and I'm looking out and, and uh, the, the, they're not songs. They're like, they're like these beautiful, majestic beasts. Right, and sometimes they parade across the stage, and they show these magnificent colors, and they're smiling, and they have personality. And sometimes they're shy, and sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they just don't feel like coming out. And sometimes maybe they never should have come out. Um, um, but but it, it's this, it's this. They're they're living, breathing things. They're not songs. They're not like I don't even know how to describe it. But but sometimes they show just snippets of, of incredible beauty. Sometimes the whole thing is magnificent. Um, and, and, and sometimes you got to sort of peek around the corners to find what's, what's, what's really interesting. Well, I think that's one reason that, you know, anyone that's a true aficionado of the, of the combination loves the combination so much because it can take you in so many different directions. You've got the common theme and you kind of know what you're in for with the opening notes and you know how it's going to, you know, oftentimes going to end depending on which ending they do a fire. But everything in between, you got absolutely no idea. And obviously, like, you know, Scarlet, I think, is a bit more formulaic than Fire is. But Fire can go in so many different directions, starting with the transition jam and then the three major jams after each verse. But uh, but each time, it's a completely different journey. Um, no matter how many times you've listened to it before, like you you, you can't predict how it's going to go. And again, with a aid of psychedelics, it can certainly be a hell of a lot more fun as you're going down that journey. So, so far, we've listened to a, to a lot of Scarlet. We haven't really gotten into a fire yet, but just out of curiosity for, for both you guys, are you, are you bigger fans of Scarlet, bigger fans of fire, or bigger fans of the transition jam? And do you get as like the hair on the back of your neck standing up when you hear the first notes where you know the fire has started? Um, I, I think, so <laughs> that's a really, that's a tough question to answer. I like all three parts of it exactly the same and it would be show by show dependent on which part I, I act I, I I like better there are two parts that that really um well there's I guess three parts in the whole uh, maybe four parts in the whole in the whole in the whole sort of three part beat that really get my goosebumps uh that really get my goosebumps going one is the the jam in scarlet like when when it feels like the band is just moving and moving and just like pushing like a locomotive on a train and that train is going around a corner and it's just about to fall off and they keep it on right and and i'm like oh my god that's just gonna fall off the rails and 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 they keep it together and they come back and it's just like wow it's it just that to me that's 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 the grateful dead um and in the uh, in 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 the transition, the transitions that I like the best are the ones where they're they really go out there on a journey, and you're thinking, how the hell are they going to get back? How are they going to find fire out of this? Um, and 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 so the deeper they go into into you know finding that jam space, and the farther out of the cosmos they got to come to to bring it back into fire. To me, is 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 really exciting, and I love the you know when Phil does the bass at the beginning of Fire. To me, that just that to me that's bone chilling. 
I just love the way Phil comes in with with the bass on top of everything, um, and 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 really really pounds out that that rhythm. So I'll say that um, the, the, in the Scarlet, the, uh, the the period before the Wind in the Willows, like I agree, like for me, like that one. If they go the extra four bars, you're not sure if they will or they won't. But the, the great ones, they always do. Just when you think it's coming back in, the band's going to step forward to the microphone and they step back instead, and you're like, yeah, we're going to get four more bars. I think the best example of that non-Grateful Dead is, um, or sort of quasi-Grateful Dead is when Trey did it with them in Chicago. And if you actually get to, to watch the Trey uh, camera from Fairly Well, you'll see him look over at Phil, and Phil gives the nod to say, keep going. And Trey gives the biggest smile, steps back, and just lights up and tears into the next four bars. And that, to me, like it's like you can't really um, encapsulate what it feels like to be a member of the Grateful Dead for a few nights better than than how he kind of looked at it going please you know do like do I get this chance do I get the chance just to tear the roof off this thing and then just does just like nails it which is something that like we watched for Garcia to do all the time you sort of look around and be like all right is he, is he stepping back up to the mic in the scarlet and if he didn't you're like all right this is you know it set the, the tone for like how's it going to be going into the transition jam how's it going to be going into the fire and I absolutely love that I agree you know look it's arguably, I guess, right up there, right, with Help Slip Frank. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest musical combinations that they have, and certainly, you know, very much of our generation, since, you know, we all missed the, the 1969, you know, jams of, you know, with all that stuff with Dark Star into St. Stephen into the 11, and those could be the, the highlights of a show, but there's nothing like a Scarlet Fire. There just isn't, and it, it you know, to me, Scarlet is just, it's a, it's a happy song. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful song. It's a fun song. It's, it, you know, it, it has great energy in it and, you know, they're just up there doing their thing. The wind, the, 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 the buildup to wind of the willows is always for me, what gets the hair on the back of my neck up. That's the part where that musical lead into that. And then them just all jumping in and singing it and sky was yellow and the sun was blue. It's just, you know, the, the lyrics, everything about it is just amazing at that point. It's, it's really Hunter Garcia and all the guys in the band, you know, just at their finest, all hitting on the same cylinder. Fire on the mountain for me is all about the music, the 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 the, the way they play the song and the way it goes up and the way it comes down and the bump 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 that you know the 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 sound that he makes all the way through. And it, it's 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 just absolutely amazing. And of course, you know, I, I have to throw in there that another big part of the song on fire is Jerry singing, right? You know, there's a dragon who's loose on the town, need a whole pail of water just to cool down. It, it's great. It's a wonderful lyric by Hunter. But, you know, Garcia just on the nights when he's on, man, he just you can I listened for that lyric by Mickey. Well, excuse me. Right. Mickey wrote the uh, the lyrics on this one. That's correct. That's true. He did play a big role in writing this one, Mickey Hart. One of the things that's really interesting about Fire is that, it, and and you, you hear this on on some Grateful Dead songs more than others, um, but but I, there's a piece of it I think in almost everything they play, but in in Fire in particular, and that is every musician on stage is playing something entirely different, and if you listen to that piece alone, it would make very little musical sense, but when you put it together right? All of these different pieces, it creates this amazing groove, right? And it's just moving and moving and moving. And it feels like it's like a living thing that's moving. And that's, you know, I, I, I think both combinations are the both songs, the combination of both songs are very special, but I love the way fire is really just a groove of multiple 
very different parts. No doubt. Uh, very well said. It's just, yeah, it, it, it is. It, it's the perfect example of the Grateful Dead having a musical conversation on stage. You're right. And, yeah, it, I, I agree. And finally, that's only two chords, right? I mean, that's, that's probably the most interesting part about it is you can take something so simple and make it so, and I guess deep is the right word because there's a lot of depth in, in Fire on the Mountain. Dense. Density. It's they make it very dense, you know. Which, it, but in a good way, you know. It, it just it, there's where you when you're when they're playing it and you realize they're not done going. There's you can go deeper and deeper and deeper before they're going to start working their way out of this. And you know that's right. Isn't that always the best part? The anticipation of anything the Grateful Dead is going to do. What song are they going to play next? And once they start playing it, how are they going to play exactly. it? Exactly. And you know we've heard different ways and we've heard different styles. And you know there's just some of those nights where they're like, screw everything, man. We're just going to play this song the way it was meant to be played, and they blow the doors off and you know these these clips that we've been listening to up to this point i think are have just been great examples um but i am very excited you know uh as as sad as it always is to leave scarlet you do it with a smile on your face because you're about to run into your good buddy fire on the mountain and the little bridge getting you from one to the other sometimes is worth the price of admission alone so uh rob why don't you lead us into this uh, next clip here oh the next one to me is the quintessential um, transition jam between a scarlet and a fire is from 1130, 1980 from the Fox theater in Atlanta, Georgia. And this transition, it, it is definitely deep and it, uh, it definitely does everything that David says it does as far as every member of the band um, firing on all cylinders. And then going into the, the moment that I think, you know, for many people is the moment they wait for, which is the opening notes of fire, which is kind of that release that you, you get of just like, all right, here we go. Like, let's, let's, move from one to the other. And it's kind of like that second where I think collectively the entire audience breathes a sigh together going, all right, you know, it's on. So, uh, so Dan, let's fire up a little bit of the Fox theater from baseline that you're talking about david that's you know phil just dropping it in so heavy as garcia comes into uh to take the opening licks what's really interesting is that right before he does that phil's playing this and i've never heard that before but it's this really sort of bizarre like three note bass line uh, usually phil plays in very long phrases uh and then it just it's like it's kind of like Phil almost pushes Jerry into fire, right? But Jerry's like, you know, you know, I, 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 you know, I think if Phil just kept on that three note little bass beat, 
Jerry would have gone out off to Never Neverland. Uh, but but then it, they brought it back. But that was a really nice transition. And Rob, the thought that occurred to me just as you were saying it as we went into this clip is this idea of a sigh of relief. You know, we, we've talked, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about occasions when they come out of fire and, or excuse me, out of Scarlet, and, you know, just to kind of keep things interesting, maybe they would go into a quick Bobby tune and sometimes they'd come back around to fire. Sometimes they wouldn't as they would, on a, you know, occasionally wander off on other tunes and forget to play the follow-ups. But it's one of those things where, you know, when I was growing up, I never understood why if I was throwing a baseball, why it mattered what my arm did once the ball left my hand, right? And once the ball leaves my hand, who cares if I just stop my hand there? But yet somehow, right, it does. It affects the ball. You have to, you have to do the complete and total follow through to get the whole effect. They can play the most amazing Scarlet Fire, Scarlet Begonias for me in the world. But if there's not a fire on the mountain, immediately following it, it somehow just doesn't feel. And, and, and while I look, it's their music and I, you know, applaud them and had fun when, you know, the couple of times when they, when I was there and they veered off in another direction and kind of shook you out of what you expected to hear. There's no replacement, you know, from a hot Scarlet fire, a hot Scarlet Begonias into a hot fire on the mountain. And yes, I, it's like a sigh, a good sigh of relief. Here we go. Just like Rob said, you hear those notes, they're committed. Now they're in, they're not going anywhere else. We're here in fire on the mountain. I, I think Scarlet fire is kind of like, to me, it's almost like a married couple, right? You know? So when, <laughs> when, when the fire doesn't come after the Scarlet means the two are arguing or they, they just shouldn't be played together. Right. Um, you know, on some days, it's just amazing. Every part of it is amazing, and it's a couple in paradise, right? Um, and and I think when when you know, and I, this is getting into my crazy head, but I used to think that you know, yeah, just fire just didn't want to sit beside Scarlet that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I only had it broken up twice. As I said my first one was a Scarlet estimated, and then in uh, 1993 at Cal Expo, I saw Picasso Moon Fire. And, uh, you know, I was grateful for the fire. Don't get me wrong. You know, I was, I was thrilled to get the fire. But, you know, you're kind of like, where's the scarlet? And, but it's a lot worse the other way around. If you get a scarlet and estimate it, you're waiting during the transition jam. And all of a sudden you're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> so, like, like, why am I not getting my fire? It's a, it, the only way that I think it's acceptable is when they, what they did in 1991 at uh, the Boston Garden when they played Helps at Fire. Where, you know, just as you're waiting, because I, I feel the same way about the release going into Franklin's. You're waiting for those first, like, you know, uh, opening notes of Franklin's. But instead, they fool you and give you the opening notes of Fire, where there's sort of that moment of the whole c- crowd's confusion of, like, wait, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, whoa, this is, you know, this is something that's ridiculously cool and special. Yeah, I always get anno- I always get a little bit annoyed when I get a Franklin's alone, right? I, ca- I call them misplaced Franklin's. Um, right. uh, uh, you know, you know, because I'm like, where's my help? There's my help on the way in Slipknot, right? I just don't want Franklin's. I want everything before that. But half step Franklin's were a really popular opening for them for a long time, right? So it was feel like a Franklin's. Feel like a Franklin's was probably yeah, it's hit all the time. Yeah, feel Franklin's was was, was big around 1980. Now I will tell you though, the, you're talking about the importance of the two and being in balance, which I do agree with. Uh, but if you listen to them in uh, Egypt from 1978, uh, the night when they play Fire, and it's just it, it, it's, it must be because they were by the pyramids and the sound and everything. And, and what I really love about that more than anything is after this beautiful fire, they have what is my personal favorite all-time Grateful Dead transition from that fire into Ico. And it, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. And, you know, all I could think about is, what would it be like to be standing there in front of the pyramids, tripping, listening to the Grateful Dead right now? And I, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, what vibes are coming out to people from that. But uh, that was that was one example of fire on the mountain. That, that fire is so cool. It's got that one's the one's got all the scratchy noises going on, right? 
like really cool, like scrape noises. Yeah, all sorts of great stuff. You know, they they knew where they were and they were they were playing it up. So that is certainly one fire that that, that can stand alone. But yeah, you know, so much about the Grateful Dead was was balance, right? How many times did you go to a show? where they played playing and they didn't come back to do the reprise. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to the next night. I'll catch it there. And they didn't do it the next night. And then maybe four nights later in the middle of nowhere, they boom, they bring out the reprise. You know, at least I got to give fish credit on a night when they play tweezer boy, they put the reprise right in the encore. They, yeah, they, they don't, they, they don't make you wait. They're going to play tweezer reprise. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I do like, I like the shows where they, where they'll play one verse of the other one, one night, one verse the next, the next night. And they'll, they'll, they'll shake things up. I, I, I like that. Um, you know, I did the, uh, Bobby, did, I did the Europe rat dog tour in 2002, or 2003. And Bobby did a ton of that all through the, 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 uh, the 2002 tour, just sort of breaking up songs from show to show and city to city. I really like that. Well, you know, it is fun, especially if you have the ticket to be at the next show, right? So you can hear, you can hear the rest of it. And when it pops back in, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, for me, it's like anything else, as much as on any given night, I just like to hear a straight scarlet fire. You know, that that's part of what keeps the Grateful Dead fun, right? Is you just don't know what they're going to play. It's the unpredictability. That's my favorite part of it. Right. If they're going to throw something else in there, that's, I mean, that's why we all go. If you knew what they were going to do, it would be nice and it would be fun, but it wouldn't be that same surprise just where you're going in one direction and boom, they just take you completely the other way. Right, right, right. And, and I, you know, and, and, you know, people, I you know, have mixed feelings about Dead & Company, but it's one of the things I like about Dead & Company is the unpredictability, right? They'll do things that, you, you know, I start showing Columbus, it was, China, it was second it was China Cat, if I had the world to give, Ryder. Right? And I was like, it was, it was, but it, it, it was such That's an great. amazing, like, it, it was kind of like, you know, we interrupt the show to bring you O'Teal Burbridge, right? <laughs> now back to our regular scheduled programming. Uh, so, you know, it was really, you know, and, and the, you know, when they can do that, I mean, it's taking risks, kind of moving songs a little bit out of place, but when they can do that and they do it right, it's just the creation of a set list is just as important as the creation of a song. And, and I think that's been true throughout all of their, you know, various derivations, right? Uh, some of them further, I saw two further shows, one at the uh, auditorium theater in Chicago in 2010. And then another one a year or two later out at uh, mill Valley and both nights. Uh, well, the, the one in uh, Chicago in one show, they did play all three. They closed the first set with China writer. They opened the second set with Scarlet fire and they closed the show with help slip Frank. And, you know, it was, and everything, you know, they, they did a, uh, uh, born cross-eyed into new potato caboose and uh, uh, St. Stephen into the 11. And they, they cut, they, they threw in a, um, a Viola Lee blues. It was just one of those nights when you think, yeah, that, that's, I mean, to me, that's that, I mean, I saw a show as days, they came out of space and days between and then did China cat rider. Right. Like that it, to me, that's, you know, sure. That's a show because it's, 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 you know, it throws you right off from what you can, what you can expect. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, it adds such, you know, to hear them come out. I saw one of the shows where they opened the, sh the, the entire show with deal. I mean, deal is a first set closer always has been, always will be. And here they are opening the damn show with, I was like, okay, why not? You know, they got the crowd up and moving good for them. It's that works for me. It's uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's great. And then the other thing is that show songs you haven't heard in like years or such a long time. Right. And, and when, you know, that, I mean, it's such a, a show is such a personal experience and, I went 21 years of seeing shows without seeing Morning Dew. 21 years, um, and and you know I'm so sorry to hear that, man. 
like you heard the one the one note, right? That 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 good wow. exactly, right? And I remember saying there's they played the other one, and I was like seeing the other one saying, if they're not if they're gonna play Morning Dew, it's gonna be next, right? To me, that show may not be amazing for everyone, but when you see something like you haven't seen in years or you know twenty shows. It's 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 uh, it's a mind blowing experience. Does that mean you never saw Garcia Morning Dew? I never saw Garcia Morning Dew. Wow. Yeah, never, never, never. My first show was was in six nineteen six nineteen ninety one, and I did not see Morning Dew until September of twenty thirteen at Red Rocks. But further, it was actually Bradford Marsalis came out in that set. Wow. Right. Wow. That's that's a crazy stat, David. Of like all like I mean, I always love hearing people's special stats. That one for me is a mind blower. Yeah, twenty I was twenty two years. Twenty two years. How many Grateful Dead shows did you see with Garcia? Uh I don't know, but I know I had fun at every one of them. But but more than twenty more than twenty, you think? I I, I probably around in and around twenty, uh twenty, twenty five, thirty somewhere between twenty and thirty. Um, uh, you know, I, I was uh I, I it's at in 1991, I was 17. So I, I, that's when I saw my first show. And then when, when, when Jerry died in 95, I was uh, uh, almost 23. So No, I mean, that so, makes sense. You can 20, 20 Grateful Dead shows, and you see them sporadically. You could definitely miss Morning Dew. That's, uh, which was – but it was always like I would see it the, the night – was the night before, the night after. Of course. That's – oh. When you're chasing a tune, that's what happens. It took me 80 shows to see high times, but you know, it's just. I, I was chasing the only the only tune I really chased that I, I wanted to see broke down Palace, which is which is why I went to October 3rd '94 because I figured they would do they would do broke down Palace. Little did I know they'd also do Addicts on My Life that night. It was the only time I saw Addicts, and that was spe- very special. Yep, yep, yep. Rob, you caught that at the uh, Warlock shows, as I recall. Uh, well, it's a. Uh... The Warlock shows that I saw were not the ones in 89. They're the ones they played in 92 at Hampton, which were um, also billed as the Warlocks. So I, I didn't I didn't get the classic, you know, 89 breakout of Dark Star Warlocks, unfortunately. Understood. Well, it's all fun when you get it. So, yeah, that, that stuff is just great, too. Well, moving right along, because we are moving right along. And, and today, folks, if you haven't noticed, we're just playing a lot of music because this is great music and we just can't get enough of it. In fact... Uh, you know, Rob and I each came up with about six versions our, ourselves, uh, and you know, just trying to pick which five or six out of that group we were going to do was crazy. Yeah, and I, th- I think the next one we're going to listen to is one that I figured was going to be on your list, Larry, because it's a Chicago show, and you tend to love the Chicago shows. Now, this is just kind of pre, um, you know, the time when you started seeing the Grateful Dead. But uh, you know, we forget that the, the Dead didn't start playing Scarlet Fire as a combo until March eighteenth of nineteen ninety seven. And so you hear all those classics springing out of the seventy sevens of the you know the greatest Scarlet Fires of all time, all the Betty Board ones that everyone you know talks about. But that was really when the combination was brand new. I think seventy eight has some of the hottest Scarlet Fires are out there, and I think seventy nine does too. So like some of my picks were April twenty fourth, seventy eight, which we're about to listen to from the Horton Fieldhouse in Illinois, and also pretty close to you is that February um, Market Square Arena show from seventy nine. That you know. I would take those over almost any 77 Scarlet Fire any day. I mean, again, it's not a competition, but as far as like pure energy, the Horton Fieldhouse to me, um, it, it burns the house down. And it's the only one I can think of where at the end of the song, uh, during, you know, kind of the, the repeating of the, of the chorus, Garcia throws in a, let it burn, let it burn, let it burn. And, uh, you know, that kind of just, signals how hot that that version was but uh but even earlier in the song i think we're going to listen to you know um one of the jams between verses right now 
But let's get into a little bit of fire. And this is uh, this is from four twenty four seventy eight, the Horton Fieldhouse. That one's awesome. And that, David, that speaks to exactly what you were saying previously about how, you know, Bobby jumps in and plays, you know, very, very unique licks sometimes in the fire that are completely unlike anything else he does anywhere in any other versions. And that version from the Horton Fieldhouse in the fire, uh, he just comes out with just completely unique stuff. It, it does. Um, this is just, you know, again, that's one like in uh, Scarlet, where I really love the build up into the wind in the willows, this build up into this, you know, to this final set of lyrics of the song is, is just as powerful. I think where Jerry's just really cooking. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're just, they're singing again. Um, I will say that uh, this has always been one of my all time favorite grateful dead shows. It's, it's, it is a Dave's picks release. I embarrassingly forget which number it is 12 or 13. I want to say, but I don't know for sure. My son goes to Illinois State University and from his dorm room, we can see Horton Fieldhouse. And I, it, it just, it amazes me that this school that he's going to right now in central Illinois, you know, at one time many years ago, hosted a Grateful Dead concert. And, uh, you know, that, that's the beauty of it. There's so many of these little schools on the East Coast and central uh, the United States on the West Coast where the dead would just show up and play or the Jerry band would just show up and play or whoever. And what's also fun about this night at Horton Fieldhouse uh, is even though it's April, right? So not exactly seasonal, they play one of the best werewolves of London I've ever heard. It's just uh, a stellar version of it. And what moved them to play it that night, I don't know, but uh, it's a great version and uh, it's just a great concert in its own right, uh, April 24th, 1978. you just happen to get a good scarlet fire in the process. So here's my random question for both of you. What's the version you saw live that you'd say was the best version you saw? And then in the sort of the tenure that you um, were seeing the great flood, what was the one that got away from you that you missed that like, you know, you heard on tape a few weeks later, a couple months later, and you're like, ah, wish I was at that show or you just happened to have missed it. And I'll, I'll go first. The best one I, I would have seen, I think it was probably June 19th, 1994 from Watson stadium, which is super, super hot. And the one that got away from me is the one we're going to listen to last, which is 10-14-1994 from MSG, where every time I hear it, I'm like, how? When I was like pretty much on tour almost full time at that time, did I not get to see this this particular Scarlet Fire? But uh, but David, what was, the, what was the, I mean, obviously the first one you saw, that pine knob uh, is pretty spectacular. But any better ones that you, got, that you caught or any better ones that you missed? So, so I, for sure, the 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 six nineteen ninety one for me is uh, is the best Scarlet Fire that I've seen. Now, in in you know my Grateful Dead days, I didn't actually see a lot of Scarlet Fires. Um, it was it was just one of those songs that that I just kept missing, um, um, and I, I did see it a few times. But 
in terms of the one that got away, I, I don't know if I've ever really listened to uh, uh, a show or, or particular songs that way and said, wow, you know, I, I should have been there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think uh, uh, I may have listened to shows and saying, you know, wow, it would have been awesome to be there. But, but, uh, but I can't think of one in particular that, that I would have said, geez, I should have been there. Okay. Well, you know, look, it's, it's hard to, I, I think to, to necessarily say best, right? I mean, there are some of these that are, that sound just absolutely amazing. Uh, but for me, it's not always, you know, I, you know, Poplar Creek, I'll just always have a smile in my heart. Anytime I hear that anywhere, anytime, it just, it, it, it resonated with me as, you know, it's kind of almost completing the circle of, of, you know, becoming a full deadhead. And, you know, when I got to hear St. Stephen a few months later, it was really kind of unexpected and special too, but, but, but Scarlet Fire was just really the thing that, you know, made me feel this is it, I'm in. And, and it's great, you know, in terms of the one that got away, I, I, I don't know that I can pinpoint any one, but I can tell you that traditionally over the years, I was the barometer of shows, right? If, if we were all going to a show and I backed out at the last minute, that was the show to go see. It was guaranteed that at that moment, that was going to be a show where they were going to pull everything out and people were going to say to me, oh man, how did you miss that great show? So if I go back through my notes and you know which shows I made it to and I didn't, I'm sure uh, that I'll stumble upon a number of them, but I guess I would say any missed Scarlet Fire is a lost opportunity. So, uh, you know, you you want to get to see as many of them as you can, and you know, if your luck had you in there the night that they closed the first set with Day Job and opened the second set with, you know, uh, Don't Ease Me In, well, that was just the way it was going to be, you know. And um, but you know, when you were there on those nights when they were rolling on a Scarlet Fire, there was really i remember like coming home from those shows and looking at all the other people on the highway and saying where have you people been tonight what have you been doing with your lives well we've been hearing this amazing amazing scarlet fire what else could you possibly have been doing and you know maybe that's a little silly but that's the way i felt at the time that's so funny <laughs> one, of the, one of the scarlet fires i certainly remember distinctly was 12 27 91 at Oak in Oakland Coliseum. Oakland Coliseum. That was a great one. Yeah, it, it was really interesting because they did looks like rain after, and then it's a terrapin. And that was the first terrapin I ever saw. And I was just, uh, I mean, I just, you know, Scarlet Fire looks like rain terrapin. Like, I, you know, I was 18 years old and I, you know, just drooling down, you know, in front of me. <laughs> did you go for all four nights? I, you know, I got shut out of New Year's. Um, so you missed the Bradford. Yeah, I got. Yeah, so I got. I got shut. I didn't get the New Year's ticket. But what's really interesting is that that October, Merle Saunders played in Toronto with the with the, with the Rainforest Band, and he was playing in a place called Lee's Palace, which you had to be nineteen and over to get in. And he was real upset about it, and so he played uh, early in the evening at a local high school. Um, and and uh, I got to talk to him after the show. We just, he showed up like three hours late to the to the night show because he just spent all the time in the high school. Um, and I'm talking to him, and I said to him, you know, I was going, I was, I was, I was going to see the Dead in Oakland in you know coming up in December. And he says to me, well, uh, why don't you come see us in the Great American Music Hall? We're playing on the 29th in between the day between the the, the four shows. Uh, and then he says, you know, what, just let me take down your name. Just go to the box office. There are going to be four tickets for you. So, so I, I, I figure like, you know, whatever, like this guy, just the Merle Saunders talked to some like teenager in a in high school gymnasium. Certainly I go to the, I go to the, uh, the, the, um, the, the great American music hall. There's four tickets at the box office with my name on it and instructions to take me backstage. So it was, it was, uh, now I was hoping Jerry was going to show up, but you know, it was woefully wrong, but 
but, oh, but, um, but you know, it was kind of a, you know, it's kind of sort of an interesting thing. Like, you know, you're just some kid talking to some, talking to Merle Saunders and then he leaves you four tickets. That's awesome. And that's such a great venue too. And I'm guessing that was your first time in San Francisco seeing music in the great American music hall in O'Farrell. That, that was my, yeah, that was, that was my first time in, in San Francisco. And it was probably like my first time I went on a plane anywhere, like without my parents. Um, and so that was, that was sort of a real interesting experience. And of course, you know, you know, being, being a Jewish kid uh, growing up in the burbs in Toronto, uh, and then, and then going to Oakland and saying, Hey, let's go check out downtown Oakland and see what, what, you know, what Dan, right? and you're like, Oh yeah, maybe we should just roll up the windows and go. There's home. a little bit of culture shock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but look where the great American music hall is, is the upper part of the tenderloin. It's not necessarily the best neighborhood either. I've been scared out of my mind, you know, late night, uh, <laughs> right around that area. But uh, I've seen some fantastic shows in that venue. It's just one of those classic rooms now. It's it's a beautiful venue, really beautiful venue. And, and obviously, everyone, every Deadhead knows it from the 1975 show that they played there. Um, Absolutely. Unfortunately, when I when I was 18, I, I think I was probably too young to to really appreciate. Um, the historical value of where I was. And I will just throw out, because why the heck not, a friend of the show, Max Wellens, once sat in with um, Carl Denson and uh, his Tiny Universe at a show that at the Great American Music Hall. Uh, his father, also a friend of the show, Alex, was uh, having a, a party for his work, and uh, uh, they let uh, Carl let uh, his son go up on stage and, and jam with him, and uh, that was pretty cool. But, Rob, speaking of that, uh, you sent... Yeah, did you hear what happened this past week? Yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to uh, reach out to our good buddy Rob Bleatstein and find out about that because he's a big Pearl Jam guy, right? But apparently their drummer was out with COVID nineteen, uh, and they were sending out word that they needed a drummer. And, and this kid who was eighteen years old sent sent an email to Eddie Vedder's daughter saying a text. He texted or tweeted or whatever the hell these kids do. And the next thing he knew, they 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 found somebody to play the drums, but then. Um, they invited the kid up to play the the, the new tune, uh, Mind Your Manners or whatever it's called. And uh, he sent us the clip. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely incredible to see. Well, I think, I think what's even cooler is that I don't think there was even like an, an open, like, you know, request for production kind of, you know, reach out. I think it was this kid heard that there was an issue, was going to go to the show, knew Eddie, has met Eddie's daughter randomly and had her number and just volunteered himself. Like, hey, I'll jump in. I'm happy to do it. And they actually reached back out to him and said, all right, let's, you know, can you play? And he sent in, uh, you know, something of, uh, of himself playing. And they said, all right, meet us before sound check." And he went out there and, and played. And they're like, yeah, man, you're in. Which has got to be for a 17 or 18-year-old kid, one of the coolest things that's ever happened in your life. But uh, anyone that hasn't seen that clip, just Google Pearl Jam COVID, uh, you know, teen drummer and check it out. But this kid absolutely smashes it. And it's, you know, really it's like what you expect to see Foo Fighters do when, you know, uh, Dave Grohl invites people up there and out of the audience and says, come play with us. And some of the greatest clips you're going to see in music in the last 10 years are, are when the Foo Fighters have done that. But, you know, sort of taking a page out of the same book, um, you know, Eddie Vedder and, and the Pearl Jam crew saying, hey, come on up and play with us. Uh, I figured you'd appreciate it, which is why I sent that to you earlier this week, Larry. That, that's, 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 that's amazing. I mean, what, one thing to meet your, your hero, it's another thing to, to play with your hero, right? Oh, and they were so supportive of him, that, right? They, I think his name was Kia, right? He gets up behind the drum kit. He goes, everyone, this is Kia. Kia, this is everyone. Okay, kid, it's your band. Let's go. And the kid just sits there, balls of steel, boop, boop, boop. And he... I, he knew when to stop. He knew when to play. And the guitar, they were all, you know, 
the stone Gossard kept going up to him. They all kept, you know, going up to him. And Eddie Vetter at one point went back there. And he, this kid looked cool as a cucumber. I couldn't have been more impressed. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 I can, I remember the first time I met Bob Weir and, and I was like shaking like a leaf. Right. I, I, I just looked at Bobby and I said, I said, you know, this, for me, this is like the first time you met Willie Dixon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt like, I said, wow, that was a really stupid thing to say. <laughs> so, so how you could be cool as a cucumber, you know, playing with, with, uh, with, with your, your, your musical heroes is pretty, uh, is pretty amazing. Well, if you guys get the chance, Google, um, Yayo Sanchez spelled Y-A-Y-O. Yayo Sanchez playing with Foo Fighters on Monkey Wrench. Oh, yeah? And you want to talk about someone that gets picked out of the audience where literally by the end of it, the entire band was like, you know, bowing down and praising him, saying, you know, we've invited a lot of people on the stage. We have never seen anyone come up here and just, like, absolutely take over the stage the way you did. I mean, the guy could have, like, jumped in and played the rest of the Pearl Jam or the rest of the Foo Fighters concert and not missed a beat. Nice. Just exceptional. Yeah. No, the, yeah. It's great to see. It's nice to know there's so much talent out there and, you know, and it's, it's, it's always fun when, you know, who was it? There was, there was a, a, a three or four year old girl who was, who got into a drum off with, um, with Dave Grohl, Dave Grohl. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, they, well, at least whatever they said, she won, but I saw part of it. And, and I have to say, Rob, you've been pushing this for a long, long time. And the other night, I just was flipping around on my computer, and I finally landed on that Jimmy Fallon drum off between Will Ferrell and um, uh, uh, Chad, what's his face from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it, first of all, Will, Will Ferrell's hysterical. I did not know he could really play drums like that. I mean, that was pretty freaking amazing. He, he, he more than held his own. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you see the movie Step Brothers, you know, you see that he can play there. Like he obviously is a well, you know, he, he has a kit in that film, and I think it was uh, picked specifically because he knew how to play the drums. Yeah, it's uh, no that 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 was that's another great uh, that was another great thing talking about drummers. That was really uh, that was really a lot of fun to see. So, at any rate, thanks to Rob Bleatstein for uh, you know bringing us up to speed on things going on in the Pearl Jam world every now and then, and um, that's always fun to hear too. So. Well, Dave, the problem that we have here is, you know, you're you're a lot like us, so we could sit here and probably just keep talking for about the next three or four hours until <laughs> our wives called and yelled or Dan said it was time to go home because, you know, he can only produce for so long, too. Um, but this has just been a, a real treat for us. We haven't even talked about your business, which I feel bad about. Um, just tell us in 30 seconds or less. I, I need to know. Are you happy with your decision, Dave? Are you happy with that decision you made? Well, you know, like I said earlier, you know, selling weed is a hell of more hell of a lot more fun than drafting documents. So, so you know, I I uh, I'm often seen on a Monday morning dancing through the store, uh, uh, which I never did in the law firm. I I think dancing was prohibited. Never, um, uh, right? And especially on a Monday. Yeah, there 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 you go. So we we really uh, are focused on quality. We're focused on craft and micro grow uh, cannabis. Uh, if consumers continue to buy consume uh, uh, corporate weed, big corporate weed, the terrorists win, and uh, that's never going to happen on my watch. I'm never going <laughs> to let that happen. Uh, what's really important to me and to my staff is um, education that we're teaching people about weed and about not just THC or not just CBC, but all of the compounds in the plant. Uh, which is why we have a section in our store called Terpene Station. Da, uh, da, 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 da. <laughs> that's it. That's it. We have we even have the sign. We had a replica of the sign from the album. So we have the LP sitting on one of the shelves, and then we have the big sign at at, at the top uh, that has a Terpene Station. Um, and so you know, we have people came in here all the time at the beginning and saying, 
I want to be with the highest THC you got, right? And I would say, well, you know, the highest THC isn't always the best weed. So what we wanted to do is educate people where they start coming asking for the most terpy weed. Let's talk myrcene. Let's talk pinene. Let's talk d And that's starting to happen, which means we've been successful what we set up to do, which is sort of teach people about the plant and, and um, not just what we know about it, but how much we don't know about it. And what we don't know about this plant is so scary. It is so scary how little we know about it. Um, but, but, you know, and I, I really... Well, that happens when it's a schedule one, you know, you don't get to really learn a whole lot about it, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it is, it is unfortunate, but, but, you know, th- there's no coincidence that we have an endocannabinoid system and plants have a phytocannabinoid system. And, and the fact that, that the cannabis plant and the human body fits together like a jigsaw puzzle the problem is, is that it's a hundred thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, and we're trying to figure out how it all goes together. And and the more we do that, the more we can, you know, advance the quality of people's lives. I really believe that. Well, that's great. Really quickly, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, people can get a hold of us uh, by certainly by email, David at scarletfirecannabis.ca. We are at three eight five two Bathurst Street in Toronto, two blocks north of Wilson on the west side of Bathurst. Uh, you can also visit our website, uh, www.scarletfirecannabis.ca. Uh, we are on Instagram, Scarlet Fire Cannabis Co., uh, and we're on Facebook and Twitter as well. And uh, we love to hear from everybody, and we respond to everybody. So even if you have something silly to say or, or you got a stupid question, <laughs> please say it or ask it because we love to hear from everybody. Wonderful. Well, you heard it here first, folks, that uh, if you're smoking – Anything but craft cannabis, you're smoking, you know, mass-produced regs, an angel loses its wings. <laughs> that, that is, I mean, it's, it's, 100, it's 100% true. There, there is a difference in the way the plant is grown and cultivated and produced and packaged for you. And it's important for us, all of us as consumers, to raise our knowledge and awareness of what makes a product good and what makes a product not so that we can align what we're willing to spend on what we believe the quality of the product is. And that's the way we got to marry things. We got to marry things between price and quality. They've got to be aligned. And it's consumers that really need okay. to push for that. Well, thank you so much, Dave Ellison, Scarlet Fire Cannabis Company in Toronto, Canada. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, all about your company. Thank you for sharing with us your knowledge and enthusiasm for the Grateful Dead. Uh, this has been a really fun show for me, and I'm sure for Rob, too. And uh, we're going to have to have you back on at some point in the future just because it feels like we've barely scratched the surface on, uh, you know. I, I would love to come back on. I, I had so much fun talking to you guys, just talking about the dead. I mean, you know, there's two things that once you get me to start talking, you can't, be to, can't get me to stop. One's weed. The other's Grateful Dead. So Yeah, well, this is the right crew for that. You're, you're in good company, man. The next time you do a six-hour marathon show, I'm, 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 I'm game. <laughs> Excellent. We will have you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we have a great show coming up next week. Our guest is Todd McCormick. We have more great music for you, and uh, we really look forward to it. Rob, tell us a little bit about this uh, great clip we got teed up for the end of the show. Well, as I said, the one that got away from me was ten fourteen ninety four, and you want to talk about layering. I had, I suggest that everyone out there listen to the Scarlet Fire because the if you take the theme that they play during the transition jam, and then you see how they elaborate it on it after the first verse and then come back to it. They don't play it during the second uh, jam, but in the third one, they come back and layer back in and the, uh, the culmination of kind of how this one builds. Uh, we're going to listen to the end of the fire, which is kind of just the, uh, the, 
everything put together from earlier in the transition jam and the post first first jam to absolutely give what I think is one of the greatest finales of a fire of all time. So with that, uh, Rob Hunt signing off from, uh, from sunny Southern California. Thanks so much to David Ellison. Thanks to our producer, Dan Hummison, to Larry Michigan, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. As always, Rob, it's a pleasure. Dave, thank you. Dan, thank you. Uh, yeah, guys, just really enjoy this. Just, you know, after you're done listening to it, go find this October 14th, 94 show. Take it home, put it on, turn it up loud. When people complain, just turn it louder. And, you know, it, it's just that some things have to be listened at full volume. You know, some things you have to feel that fill bass vibrating out of the speakers at you. You have to feel when Garcia does something and Weir fills in the holes underneath. And, uh, you know, let's give Vince credit where credit is due. You know, he he stands up really strong here and, and brings in uh, a, a really great addition on the keyboard. So, uh, we will leave you with uh, the end of our Scarlet Fire show. Uh, we will be looking for other themes in the future. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects Network. Network.